We'll be turning to James chapter 4, it's where we're at today. We're going to speed up some of our reading today. We're going to go right into chapter 5. And we're going to be covering what most Bibles, as well as our study guides, have broken up into two sections. This is because I find James's logic and thinking to be on one big subject through both of these sections. And if you can remember about 700 years ago, <laughs> when we did our last series, um, we did a topic on the series of simplicity. And we said that simplicity was defined as having a sole focus or a sole preoccupation or a vocation in life so that all things are subject to our sole focus. And our sole focus as Christians should be like that sole focus of Jesus who said, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And James is, in essence, putting that truth of simplicity and soul focus into what looks what it looks like in practical living in these verses that we're studying. He infuses the idea of simplicity into two things that preoccupy our lives, and that is making plans and making money. <laughs> and where making money has landed some of his hearers in sin. So I invite you to stand in honor of hearing and reading the Lord's Word today. If you're able to stand, as we read James 4, 13 through chapter 5, verse 6. James writes, Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like a smoke that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is a sin for the person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is ruined and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your silver and gold are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who reaped your fields cries out and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the land and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your heart for the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man, and he does not resist you. Let's pray. Father, I uh, personally don't want this to be a go through the motions, hear your word, learn a few things, walk away a little enlightened. I pray that your spirit would move on our hearts, that you would do whatever it is you wish to do to us today, whether it be conviction or encouragement or comfort, and Father, that you would find us responding accordingly to your word. Father, we pray that your voice is what's heard today, that you would get me out of the way. We pray that you would soften any hard hearts. We pray that you would redeem lives. Redeem minds. Father, we pray against the enemy, that he would have no say, 
over what happens or no effects over us. So, Father, we pray that you would move, and we ask these things in the work and grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. How much consideration does God have in your life or in my life? Oftentimes, Christians like myself, I find that God has consideration in our lives and when it comes to, to what we think are godly hobbies or maybe godly activities or when it comes to hard decisions or tragedies, maybe we put on the schedule personal devotion time daily, and if you don't have that in your life, I would command you to do that every day, but I'm not going to command you, but it is worth doing. But oftentimes we put on the schedule maybe personal devotional time, and that's when God comes into our schedule. Or we find time to pray, we know we should probably do it before meals, or maybe before bedtime, or maybe out in the tractor, some of you, <laughs> whenever we find time to pray. And so God's back into our lives, and we're thinking, and we're praying. And then maybe when a tragedy hits, or broken relationships, or illness, or financial problems, and, and we're Christians, so we know we can appeal to a higher power, a sovereign being whom we know, believe, and expect to fight our battles, and so we put in our two pennies in the gumball machine, God, and, hey God, I'm having a tragedy here, let me put my time in, you know, because I'm a Christian. But what about... What about when you're considering a job? Or what about when you're making plans for the future? What about when you look in your, your bank account and, and think you can plan for a vacation? Or what about when you watch TV? <laughs> what about when you peruse the internet or peruse a magazine or read up on your passions and hobbies and so forth? What about when you get your schedule out? And if you're like Christy, you make lists and you have written out schedules. And, you know, I have a schedule, too. It's usually up here scrambled behind everything else. But as I get my schedule out, instead of just penciling him in for personal devotions, but, but do I ever ask God to occupy the times and activities that I think he's not interested in? Or the conversations with that, that we think he's not listening in on? the tasks and the things that we do routine that, he, that we think he's not preoccupied with, or the life plans and the visions we have for ourselves and our future that, you know, sometimes as we think about our future, we'll assume we'll be going to church and doing all the right daily Christian duties. But if we're honest, the life plans and future, sometimes we have in mind is one that's self-serving and, and maybe not God-serving. James starts it this way back in James 4.13. He says, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and, and do business and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like a smoke that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead you should say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The latter part of verse, four, uh, verse 14 and all of verse 15 is really the frame of reference that James wants and that the Holy Spirit wants all of his listeners to have, and that is 
our life's briefness. Thus, we should ask God what we should do with all of our time. You know, I heard this from a pastor a while ago, and if you listen to the same radio show, maybe you heard it. What if every day you woke up and you found $86,400 and put into your bank account? And if you had that every day, the money does not carry over, and, and one dollars you do not use by the day's end, you, you don't have back the next day except for another $86,400, the account starts over. But you can't save, you can't build up, you can't borrow against it, you can't keep it in any way, shape, or form, but every day you have $86,400. Would you find ways to spend it wisely? Would you want to give to a charity and make most use of your excess funds? What would you do? You and I have 86,400 seconds to spend every day. It's the same thing. We can't have any of it carried over. There's no such thing as living on borrowed time. Because once it's lent, it's spent. But the thing about time, James is telling us, is that the sovereign God we serve knows all about it. He knows what the future holds. He knows where each path leads. So come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring or what your life will be. So is James saying we should not make plans? James is quoting uh, almost verbatim a proverb, 27 verse 1 says, Don't boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day might bring. Tragedies often make this truth so vivid. Obviously, a bunch of travelers who had their plane tickets on September 10th, 2001, had plans of arriving somewhere the following day to go about their plans. But a tragedy happened. And that's not to say that they should have prayed harder about it or that they should have known better. But the reality is the enemy prowls around and seeks to do harm. And for reasons unknown to us, many times he is permitted to do so by God. So it's not that James or the Holy Spirit is warning us to not make plans and be wise on planning. Twice in the Proverbs, I get a humility check and I'm turned told to learn a few things from ants. The proverb says, go to the ant, you slacker, observe its ways and become wise. Without leader, administrator, or ruler, it prepares its provisions in the summer. It gathers food during harvest. How long will you stay in bed, you slacker? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and your poverty will become like a robber, your need like a bandit. Proverbs 30.25 tells us of the same wisdom of ants. Proverbs 20, verse 18 tells us, Finalize plans with counsel and wage wars with sound guidance. Proverbs 24, 27 tells us how to properly go about living and planning. Complete your outdoor work and prepare your field. Afterward, build your house. So the wisdom from the Spirit is not being careless planners, but to be wise planners. And wisdom does not start with having the best of plans. It starts with the fear of the Lord. So it tells us the Proverbs. It starts with putting God right smack dab front and center of the equation of our planning. Do you hear that? And so when it comes to planning, we need to realize that God is in control. 
And we need to realize that time is short, for you are like smoke or mist or steam or breath or vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, I know a lot of you uh, love summer and are sad to see it go, but I'm ready for autumn, not just because I love autumn, but I'm ready to see all the bees go. Not, not filled bees, of course, but all the other bees that bug me. And, you know, when a frost happens, you go out in the morning, and I know nobody ever walks out and gets the paper in the morning anymore, but whatever you do and you breathe, what do you see? Your breath. Now, this is not because I'm a hunter. I, you know, that picture of the elk I had for... But I actually had that picture because you can see his breath. For those passing seconds that you see your breath, James is saying in the big scheme of things, that's your life. That's my life. And what I really want you to hear there is that James or the Holy Spirit is not showing us the transitory nature of our lives to restrain us from living life to the fullest, but rather compel us to live life to the fullest. Because we live in a world that says more things, more experiences, more freedoms and choices and decisions, more, 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 will mean that we will be full, full, full. And the Bible consistently tells us the ironic fact that it's not a person who has everything he wants, who is fulfilled or satisfied or happy, but a person who has emptied himself so that he leaves all of his life available, ready and open, receptive to what God has in store. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, gathering more, 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 whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loves his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Instead, James says, instead of making plans, making a profit, gaining all you can gain, instead, James says, this is much wiser. You should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And this is not a passing or a concession or a mandatory preface to our statements, if the Lord wills, right? This isn't a, okay, James is telling me to throw God in the equation, so now I'll make plans to go to that city, trade, and make a profit, if the Lord wills. So see, he's in my equation. Now I can check that off my list. That's not what James is getting at. What James is getting at, and what, James, what Jesus is getting at, and what Paul is getting at whenever he says he's been crucified with Christ and no longer lives, and that is the Lord should be making my plans. He and I should be so united in thought and word and deed and focus and passions to where I can say with Jesus, whatever my Father wills or does, that I do likewise. Why? Is it because we're enslaved and pushed to slave labor to do what God wants us to do? No. Because it means we've discovered what we're made for. And lo and behold, it is to reflect our great God, we are made in his image, and do what he's called us to do. That is where we will be fulfilled. That is where, better than making a profit, and I'm not saying God never calls anybody to make profits, but better than making a profit, we will be doing 
what we are designed to do. Even if that means we're not billionaires. Even if that means not everything is paid off and we're living happily above our means. One of the first books of the Bible I read entirely through in the Holman Christian Standard Bible is the Proverbs. I read it earlier this year. And in it, consistently I found this word I don't read a lot in other Bibles, and that is the word happy. <laughs> to, to give you a picture, the ESV, the other Bible I read, uses the English word happy only eight times in the entire Bible. And none of those are in the Proverbs. And I won't walk through all the Proverbs it uses, but listen to where the, words, the word happy is used in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Proverbs 8.32 says, And now, sons, listen to me. Those who keep my ways are happy. Or the second part of Proverbs 16.20, And the one who trusts in the Lord will be happy. Proverbs 28.14, Happy is the one who is always reverent, but one, who's hard, one who hardens his heart will fall into trouble. Proverbs 29.18, Without revelation, people run wild, but one who listens to instruction will be happy. And the word happy here being translated in the Holman Christian Standard Bible is the word beloved in most commonly other used translations. And the definition of the Hebrew word, of these words, is both blessed or happy. And it really helps me to know that to be blessed is to be happy. The real happy, not the happy as an oh boy, I got a milkshake happy, but content and filled with joy. And the same can be said for the Greek word in Matthew 5 that's translated as blessed in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit and so forth. The word blessed in Greek is also can mean both happy or blessed. Well, what's my point for that little word study? It goes back to what I'm saying. And that is James or the Holy Spirit is not trying to restrain anyone from living life to the fullest and to the happiest whenever he says, put God's smack dab in the middle of your equations and plans, rather to have God to be so certainly and primarily directing your life proactively, doing what he wants over what you want, will land you in a life that's blessed, a life that's happy, a life that's fulfilled. Do you understand that? But as it is, says James, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. This gets to the heart of what is being preached against here. Again, James is not railing against wise planners, but ones who are taking, not taking into consideration what God wants. Again, the example that James gave at the beginning was folks hoping to make a nice dollar at a distant city. See, making money, working for wages, are not bad. But they become sin if it's not what God wants. Or if it becomes a hindrance to the person doing what they should be doing. Verse 17, so it is a sin for the person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. A relationship with the living God is not always a relationship of here's what I do, routine, and here's what I shouldn't do, routine. Always do this, always do that, always don't do this, always don't do that. Now to be certain, there is never a time in our lives where we deny God or deny Christ or period. But also to be certain, there is a time in life when we should speak. A time in life when we should not speak. A time where speaking certain words might be a sin, or a time when speaking the exact same words might not be a sin. 
A time when making money at a certain job might be a sin, or a time when making money at the same job might not be a sin. How so? It's a sin to ignore God when he calls us to tasks, and instead we do something else. So it is a sin for the person who knows what to do, what is good, and doesn't do it. I'm reminded of the book of Acts where Luke writes, in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, talking about Paul and company going around ministering, Listen to how Luke words it. He says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia and were prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the message in Asia. How do you think that conversation went down? I don't think we should spread the gospel here. What? (laughs) When they came to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Another chance to witness, and they couldn't. By the Spirit of Jesus. So bypassing Mycenae, they came down to Troas. During the night, a vision appeared to Paul. A Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to evangelize them. Do you see here the closeness that Paul and his company feel with God, that this is living life with God in front and center in the plans and in the equations? To live life to the fullest, to the happiest, to make the most of all 86,400 seconds we have every day is to live life where and how the Lord wills. Not always just if the Lord wills for you to do this or that. You hear the difference? The Lord's will may be for some people to be rich. But even if it is, the Lord's will is never for someone to be consumed in pursuing Riches all their lives. That's the idea that James moves into as we switch into chapter 5. And James continues with the same phrase he started back where we first started in chapter 4. He says, come now, you rich people. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is ruined and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your silver and gold are corroded. And their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat. Your flesh like fire, you stored up treasure in the last days. I've told you from the get-go of this series, so about 400 years ago when we started this series, something to be made aware of in James's letter is that he's writing in a Jewish wisdom fashion. That's why I can quote a lot of Proverbs and show you where James is getting his information from. A time for this, a time for that. Sounds like Ecclesiastes. So... James is also writing cyclical and cycles. He comes back to themes over and over. And the theme that James is speaking on here in James 5, he brushed up a little bit on it in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, where James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Similar themes of transience, life is like smoke or a mist, or life is like a flower of the grass that perishes in the season. But also James's exhortation to the rich is a similar theme. And I said back in, I think, June, whenever we covered that passage, and I say again today that the Bible or James is not writing off all rich people as sinful. But for the wealthy people, and the obviously sinfully wealthy people, as we will note in a few minutes here in James 5, 
Interestingly enough, James says it's a matter of perspective again. See, the perspective James gave us in the latter part of chapter 4 is that our life is but a mist or a smoke. But here James notes the idiocy of the rich man to be storing up treasure in the last days. Verse 3. In James's time, he was referring to the last days. What does this mean, that James was wrong in thinking that he lived in the last days? We believe the Bible to be inerrant, and so before we think that James was thinking it was the last days, when so far he's 2,000 years off, let's see if there's an alternative point of view to consider here. In fact, the New Testament authors repeatedly point to the coming of Jesus as being the inauguration and entrance into the last days. Paul says in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The fullness of time, the, the completion of time, has come. And the author of Hebrews also tells us, In these last days, he that is God has spoken to us by his Son. What are the last days? The last days means that all that's left is for God to return and take his bride home. It was not the last days when Noah saved everyone in the ark because sin still resided in the heart of Noah and all those who were with him. It wasn't the last days when Abraham left his pagan upbringings to go out and have descendants who would be a holy people before God because the people ended up not being holy. <laughs> it wasn't the last days when Moses led the people out of Egypt because, again, Israel could not remain holy. But rather, all of human history and all of these people were on the trajectory, leaning into and pointing to and, and coming into realization through Jesus. And that's where the end is. Because Jesus does what no other before him could do. And that is provide forgiveness of sins, because Jesus is nothing less than God incarnate. For Hebrews 1 continues in verse 2, God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high. And Jesus inaugurates the last days because there's nothing that remains to be done except complete consummation. And the author of Hebrews knows a difference between the last days inaugurated with Jesus and a final day in history where those who have professed faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sin will then be taken home, fulfilling the salvation they've laid claim to by the grace of God. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, he says, But now he, that is Jesus, has appeared one time at the end of the ages, for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. So we know that's exactly what happened 2,000 years ago. The end of the ages was when Jesus came, suffered, and died for the sins of humanity, including my son Calvin. <laughs> but now, the author will speak of a second time to effectively end the last days. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many at the end of the ages, is what the author just told us, 
will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1.5, you are being protected by God's power. You can take this verse to the bank. You are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And so, the warning from James to the rich, who were exploiting the poor, is that don't you realize all that's left on God's timetable is judgment? Right? He's done his final act to provide salvation for all those who receive it, so when he comes back again, he doesn't have any other work to do other than judgment. If you're living in the last days, he can come back any minute to judge you. It's appointed people to die once and after this judgment, said the author of Hebrews. Get your act together. Repent. Stop making wealth your God in which you do anything, including sin, to get it. And make Jesus front and center. Do you hear that? The latter part of verse 3, you've stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from your workers, from the workers who reaped your fields, cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Let's not miss this. This is akin to the very beginning of the Bible back in Genesis 4.10. When Cain kills Abel, what does God say to Cain? What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What does this mean? It means that those in James's day that were being exploited by the rich, or when we're exploited or injustice is done to us, we all serve a God of justice. No injustice goes unnoticed. The injustice has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That means a Lord of company, or in this case, of armies. God's got armies on his side to enact justice to those who have been unjust. Listen to this from Revelation 9. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is judgment for those who ignore that they are in the last days. Meanwhile, the sinful rich that James is talking to are living in arrogance and ignorance. James says, you have lived luxuriously on the land and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. We have feeder steers over at Phil and Bonnie's every year, and even though they eat good, they don't know they're going to be slaughtered. This is what the rich are doing. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. He does not resist you. The righteous man does not resist what's happening. Jesus tells his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was a said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. 
On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And it seems Jesus' followers took this seriously. That even when it came to them being tenants, working the land of greedy landowners, they didn't resist their greedy landowners. Paul likewise says in Colossians 3, 22-23, he's talking to slaves and he says, Obey your human masters and everything. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he does, and there is no favoritism. Believers in Jesus were serving their their masters and their landowners, you can't put those two words together, (laughs) as if for the Lord. And even still, if they were treated poorly, unfairly, Even if the rich had condemned and murdered the righteous man, the righteous man does not resist the rich. Our local James, Wilbright, not James the author of this book here, made us aware of a theory theory in his studies that we have that encircles around who this righteous man is. And I want to borrow that theory and say that James, the author of this book that we're studying, could have been using some choice words to bring conviction to the rich man in his letter. See, we aren't told or given the info if James is rebuking some rich people who used to attend the church or just rich unbelievers in general. But it's rather interesting that James gets very specific. He says, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. What does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus. That's the theory that our James Wilbright told us about in our studies. And it comes back to the truth that I've said in other sermons, and that is, Jesus never calls any of his disciples to do what he has not already done. So when it comes to not resisting evildoers, Jesus has been there. It's a perfect end for this section too because it points us back to what all of us are called to do and called to be, and that is live in light of what the Lord's will is. It was the Lord's will for the persecuted believers under the rich To live up to the high call of not resisting. It's the Lord's will for you and I to each and every day, no matter the cost, be willing to say, Lord, what would you have me do? Whenever I make plans, Lord, I want you to make them. Because my life is like a vapor, and I want it to count. I'm living in the last times. I want to remain faithful. Jesus came and lived 33 years and saved the world. Jesus came and endured and did not resist the evildoer, but he was condemned and murdered for our sake. Jesus said we be left with the Spirit who empowered Jesus' life and his rising from the grave, that that Spirit would live in us. Because of his great love and because of his Spirit, may we be faithful as well. May we live our lives each day and every day in light of what the Lord is willing us to. May we awake every morning and instead of saying, Lord, here's my plans for the day, Lord willing, Lord, if I cleared my schedule, what would you fill it up with today?
If I gave you my schedule, what would you want me to do today? It may be go about your tasks. I don't want you to hear that everybody needs to sell everything and go be witnesses and evangelists. But I dare you to pray that every day. Lord, if I, if I cleared my schedule, what would you fill it up with? Would it look like what I want to do today? Or would it look like something else? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word. We must read the whole counsel of God. We remember James is writing in a certain time, a certain context, saying certain things to certain situations. But as we come to your word and we realize that what you've called us to whenever we profess that you to be our Lord and Savior, that means you want to be Lord over our lives, our schedules, the plans we make, the money we make. So, Father, I ask myself, if I woke up tomorrow, I already have plans. I have an idea of what I'm going to do, what the day might look like. But if I woke up tomorrow and asked you this question, would you respond what I'm already thinking about, or would you respond differently? Father, for, for some people, perhaps this will make their week entirely different. For other people, perhaps you have them where you want them. Whatever the case may be, Holy Spirit, I pray you give us receptive hearts and willing hearts to obey you. Especially whenever it makes us uncomfortable. Especially whenever you're calling us to do things we, if we're honest, don't want to do. But as you reminded us today, you don't call us to give up our lives for pain and agony, but you call us to give up our lives, to live the life that you've created for us to live, which will be the most fulfilling, content, joy-filled life we could live. So, Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you that you call us to live in this way. We ask and we pray that you would have your way in our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.